So the response from off-takers has been terrific. We'll be doing some formal announcements in the coming months, but just to give you a sense that we did an initial expression of interest and that was significantly oversubscribed. Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features various experts from Aurora having in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers and academics from all over the world. It explores the hottest topics across the energy market and gives a unique perspective on major energy issues. Welcome to Energy Unplugged. I'm Hugo Batten, Managing Director of APAC for Aurora. We're very much looking forward to today's discussion. We have Fraser Thompson in today. He's the co-founder and chief strategy officer for Sun Cable. He also founded an economic strategy consultancy called Alpha Beta, headquartered in Singapore, which has been acquired by Access Partnership. Prior to this, he spent nine years at McKinsey, and in particular at McKinsey's Global Institute, which I always used to describe as McKinsey's top gun. Fraser, welcome to Energy Unplugged. We're delighted you can join us. Thanks for having me, Hugo. We're also joined by Weiji Mack, Aurora's Head of Consulting in Australia, who's going to interview Fraser with me today. Thanks, Hugo. Very excited for this opportunity. Terrific. Fraser, everyone in Australia would be very familiar with the potentially immense Sun Cable project. Um, batteries and solar in the Northern Territory to deliver power to Singapore. Um, But for our EU and USA listeners, can you give us a rundown of the fundamentals of the project as they currently stand? Sure, happy to. Perhaps before I go to that project, it's worth taking a moment to talk about uh, Sun Cable more broadly. Uh, Mm. I co-founded Sun Cable with David Griffin and my, my brother, Mac Thompson, back in 2018. Uh, we've been pleased to have the support of our two anchor investors, uh, which is Mike Cannon-Brooks' Grok Ventures and Dr. Andrew Forrest's Squadron Energy. And for for those uh, overseas listeners, I think they're the two richest people in Australia, if, if not they're pr- pretty close. Mike Cannon-Brooks founded Atlassian and um, Dr. Andrew Forrest, obviously, uh, Fortescue. Uh, so, so two pretty heavyweight investors. And uh, we're, we're very pleased to have them on board. And, and, and our mission at Suncable is, that's quite simple. We take renewable electricity from where it's abundant and low cost to places where there's high demand, but there's low availability. Um, and, and there's three sort of trends that go behind this, which are really important to understand. Uh, the first is that you know, something that we know well in Australia is that we have abundant solar energy resource. We have 58 million petajoules of solar energy falling on Australia every year. And you know, not everyone will be familiar with what is a petajoule. But to put it in context, we only use 400 petajoules at the moment in Australia. And even if we had 100% of our primary energy needs served by solar, it's still 0.01% of that solar resource. Mm. Uh, So we could power the world 100 times over with this solar resource. The the second point is that we're sitting on the doorstep in Australia, the most dynamic region in the world. Uh, We have 550 million people in Asia moving to cities by 2030. The consuming class is doubling. Uh, and plus, we've got this global trend of electrification. And, and you put all that together uh, and you're seeing at least a doubling of energy demand by 2050, uh, but potentially much, much higher. And then the final aspect of this, and this has been the missing piece in the why now, is that we now have had this evolution in high voltage direct current cable. Um, and so these are the bits that we, we talk less about in the energy transition, but really important. Basically, it's the ability to transport electricity 
over long distances in a reliable and flexible manner. Mm. And that's been a combination of reasons from voltage improvements that have been over at 10% per annum, so it's more less transmission losses, uh, more reliability because of better manufacturing and cable barrel risk assessment, uh, and operational flexibility means that we can go into deeper waters. So that's the, if you like, the, the background context for Sun Cable. And, and our first project is this Australia-Asia PowerLink. Uh, so it's the, um, uh, the largest solar, solar farm in the, in the world. So it is 17 uh, to 20 gigawatts in 12,000 hectares in, in the Northern Territory. Um, so the solar site is about 800 kilometres south of, of Darwin. Um, we also have a 36 to 42 gigawatt hour uh, battery at the solar precinct providing dispatchable electricity. Um, from the, the solar site, uh, we have an um, overhead transmission line that runs along the, the railway line corridor uh, all the way into Darwin, uh, where we'll be dropping off about 800 megawatts of, of capacity to supply Darwin's needs. Uh, and then the rest of it goes through a 4,200 kilometre uh, undersea cable all the way to Singapore. Uh, and it'll supply roughly about 1.8 gigawatts um, of dispatchable electricity into Singapore. Awesome. That, that's a great summation. I, I might hand it over to Mac in a second to, to get into the details of the project. But at the highest levels, like if, if you were, you know, setting this as a McKinsey case study interview problem, can, can you kind of explain to our listeners how they should think through the economics of this project? Yeah, sure. I think the, the first to understand the building blocks of what drives the cost of these these projects uh, the first is around land so we have 12,000 hectares in the northern territory um, and to those not familiar with the australian context you know northern territory is a vast amount um, of, of land um, and we're using a tiny fraction of it and an incredible solar resource so we have per square meter um, we have 31 percent more electricity um, than you get anywhere near the equator because you have less cloud cover. So you're starting off with this resource, which is abundant and high quality solar resource compared to local supply. Um, the, the second thing that makes the economics work is, is around the, the scale. Um, uh, and so with the scale of each of these components, it allows us to completely rethink the way we design these systems. And, and a solar farm at, at around a 20 gigawatt solar farm is completely different from one in the hundreds of megawatts. You can, you can do things with automation, and a range of innovations which are not viable at that other smaller scale. Mm. And then the third bit is, as mm. I mentioned, this kind of transmission technology um, improvement that now lowers the cost for going longer distance. Um, so those are the, the building blocks which make mm. it uh, make the economics work. It, it's interesting, though, when we, we talk to off-takers, obviously the price is incredibly important, but the other things they care about is price volatility, right? So that particularly mm. in, in with the period we're in now, it's about removing that price, vol um, price volatility and, and offering, you know, 40-year PPAs. Mm. It, it's also about, you know, this interesting discussion at the moment, it's about being truly zero carbon. So you, not all renewable electricity is born equal. Right? Um, and even, you know, we're getting more awareness of things like hydro electricity that, you know, hydro can be a terrific resource, but depending on how it's built, it could actually have significant biodiversity impacts. And so how, does, how do we think about really getting something which is not only zero carbon, but also biodiversity positive? Um, and then finally, there's always the question of certainty of supply. Um, so if you look recently, both Malaysia and Indonesia have decided to ban electricity exports to Singapore. Um, and that's because they've got their own domestic needs. 
that they have to satisfy, which is which is justifiable. Whereas Australia, as I mentioned earlier, is in a lucky position that we have more than enough to satisfy domestic needs. Um, so it's that combination that it, often our takers, yes, price is a starting point, but it's it's that broader aspects of the volatility, the, the biodiversity impacts mm-hmm. and the certainty of supply that become really important. Thanks, thanks, Fraser. And then you've touched on three really important points there, and we might circle back on that um, in, in a short while. You know, you're, you're obviously looking at very ambitious plans to export renewable power to Singapore, you know, harnessing the pedagogies of solar resources available in Australia, sending it through to, to Singapore. And then for listeners out there, which might not be familiar, you know, Singapore has only about 12 gigawatts of generation. So if you're looking at a two gigawatt project, you're looking at something like 20% of, of Singapore's, you know, total generation capacity potentially coming through to Sun Cable. So, so what might be some of the key impacts on the Singapore market that, that you think might get, you know, kind of come out of this project itself? Yeah, good question. So we're going to supply roughly about 15% of Singapore's energy mix by the time that we, we start supply. Um, and the, the benefits for Singapore really come in a few different forms. The, the first one is obviously around carbon abatement. So Singapore has few local resources, which are scalable, for renewable electricity. There's, there's limited tidal, there's uh, limited wind, there's not the land mass for, for solar. Um, so a lot of those opportunities that are available for other locations uh, are not available for Singapore. Uh, so this will be a, a big help in, in helping that carbon abatement. And our project alone can meet Singapore's current abatement gap to meet their 2030 goals. The second is obviously around energy price volatility. And I, I referred to it earlier, but in, in Singapore, because of its its dominance and reliance on the gas market internationally, yeah. you know, what happens in, um, in in Ukraine and other distant lands has a yeah. huge impact on Singapore. So it's about also reducing the vulnerability uh, that, that comes from that exposure. And, and the final bit, and this is what we often don't talk about a lot, but it's important, is an increasingly renewable electricity has been seen as a license to operate. Uh, for companies that are coming in with FDI. Uh, and, and that's for many of our off-takers have had this discussion that they'll decide whether to build or invest if they can get the guaranteed renewable electricity. And, and we did a bit of a back-of-the-envelope calculation that our project would enable roughly about $9.85 billion Singaporean dollars annually in economic impact from the FDI mm-hmm. support it would bring in. So they, mm-hmm. these are the kind of benefits that we see than the, the positive impact of, of the Singaporean market. Thanks, Fraser. It seems like, you know, that's obviously quite a bit of benefits that, that you envisage bringing to, to the Singapore market. Um, and a big part of this would, you know, from, from what I gathered from your earlier kind of response was that a PPA would, would be something that, that you obviously be lo- looking forward to, to get this project going economically. You know, how, how has the response from the Singapore side been then? You know, has it been, been pretty positive given how, how you might potentially help with the price volatility? and then the security of supply issues that they were facing at the moment? So the response from off-takers has been, um, been terrific. So we'll, we'll be doing some formal announcements in the coming months, but just to give you a sense that uh, our we did an initial expression of interest um, and that was significantly oversubscribed from our available supply. So it's we, we, we knew that the demand was going to be there, but it's been proven by the, the, um, the active response to the expression of interest. On the, on the government side, we're going through a formal RFP process, so there's limited things that I can say about that, but it's a, yeah. it's been a very productive relationship and, and we've been engaging closely with the Singaporean government over the last two years. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's also helped by the fact that Australia and Singapore um, at a, a government-to-government level have a very close 
engagement. And, and we've seen that recently with the Green Economy Agreement, which has been signed between the two countries. So that's, a, you know, that's an important part of it is that we need to get the, the economics right, but we also need to get the, the, the governance structures and the politics right as well with any of these projects. Just touching on politics then, I mean, what are still the major outstanding challenges to, you know, final investment decision and, and delivery? You know, clearly it's a technically challenging project and, and there's that aspect, but but what are the others? Yes, look, the, the key things, you know, when we think about to these projects, you've got part, I sort of put them into sort of two categories. I put them into the technical and I put the other ones into the political. Um, yeah. In, the, in the, the technical side of things, we're, we're, uh, we've got a, a great team uh, of leading experts from Bechtel, Hatch, Sabana, Jurong and Marsh. And we've got over 200 people who are supporting the over 100 people in Sun Cable um, developing this, this project. So that's terrific to have that. But there's a, there's a huge scope of activities there um, to design this optimised system. Um, there that we've had strong pro pro progress. The, the real key things that we focus on at the moment is securing access to critical inputs. Uh, and so these are particularly things around cable supply, um, but also around uh, the supply chains when it comes to solar. You know, there, there's increasing focus on geopolitical risks with the solar supply chain, increasing focus on um, uh, slavery um, conditions in those supply chains as well. Um, and all of this is, uh, is important to, to get right and critical importance for us, uh, but it makes it a much more complex task than it was, particularly when you're building at this scale. So we, we have a, a whole set of teams are looking just at that procurement aspect to, to lock in the, the key inputs that, that we need. When it comes to the political side, uh, we're obviously dealing with three um, or four jurisdictions when you include Northern Territory. Um, so we have uh, been lucky on the Australia end that we've received major project status uh, by the Northern Territory and the Australian governments. Uh, it has been pleasing to see you know, Australia's new Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, um, publicly mentioned the the, uh, the project and the support for this, uh, and and practically speaking, that the kind of legislation that's been passed through the Northern Territory, our project development agreement, and Sun Cable specific legislation is incredibly helpful for speeding the permitting and approvals process for everything we mm. need there. So that's been great. Um, on the Indonesia end, it's also been terrific. We've had strong support um, from early on uh, from the Indonesian government. Uh, they gave us. Um, uh, preliminary route approval that was announced back in September last year um, and the subsea permits. Uh, and, and part of the you know, incentive for Indonesia is, is very clear cut, is that even though we don't drop off electricity into Indonesia, we see Indonesia as a fantastic opportunity for sourcing many of our key components. And so we announced uh, US dollars, $2.6 billion of potential investment and spending over the lifetime of the project that we're looking to source from Indonesia. And so that's active focus for us is to make that happen. Um, plus, we've, we've signed two MOUs with Indonesian uh, universities to help them on knowledge transfer to develop their own um, domestic grid. So that, that's a key bit. And obviously, Singapore is the final piece of the puzzle. Uh, we're, we're going through the, the RFP process at the moment. And, and obviously, I can't say much about this, but uh, it's, it's been a, a, a very strong and close engagement over the, the past two years. So that's where we're at. It's you know, it's yeah. always every every week brings a new challenge. Uh, but the, the the both the technical aspects and the government aspects at the moment uh, are yeah. definitely tracking uh, to the the levels that we hope they would be at this stage. Yeah. So I think it seems like you know you're you're getting great support from the governments, not just from Australia, but but the various international governments. What about the private sector? How has the response been from the private sector to date? 
So look, it, it's been it's been great. Um, I think we would separate the, the private sector in a few different levels. So from a supplier standpoint, we're, we're closely engaged with a range of different suppliers. Um, obviously, the critical inputs like cable manufacturers uh, uh, on the, the the solar, the batteries, etc. Uh, so we've done a, a range of of different sort of fact finding tours to to different operators around the world to to understand what's happening with technological trends. Uh, how do we think about the right design for us? Uh, we've also put a strong focus with the Northern Territory routes is to make sure that uh, local and Indigenous companies uh, have the, the best chance to benefit from that as, as well. So that's that's been positive. You know, we're, we're also a sponsor of the local football leagues in, in the Northern Territory. It's just it's little bits, but it's, you know, it's things that we like to sort of show that we're not here just to develop a project. We um, A lot of our people come from the Northern Territory and we, we want to find a way to, to give back. So that's, that's on that aspect. On the off-taker side, uh, we've, we've got two sets of off-takers, if you like. We've got off-takers in Darwin for that 800 megawatts mm-hmm. I mentioned earlier. Um, we will be making a formal announcement about that in the, in the coming months. Uh, but what I can say is that there we are significantly oversubscribed uh, from uh, the amount that we can deliver. Uh, so you know, that's for production of everything from green hydrogen to sustainable yeah. aviation fuels. Uh, so there'll be you know, more mega scale projects that are going to be needed to supply that that full demand. Uh, and then in the Singapore end, I mentioned earlier too that we've been over oversubscribed in terms of our expressions of interest that we've received. Uh, so it's it's been uh, it's been a great response so far. Our our next job is actually putting those into binding commitments uh, and mm-hmm. and actually packaging in that up for financial close for the project, which we're we're hoping to do. Um, towards the the end of 2023, start of 2024. Right, so to slightly broaden it from, um, you know, the particular Sun Cable project, clearly your focus is on Singapore, but, you know, through your professional career, you've operated in a number of Southeast Asian markets. Are there any other Southeast Asian markets you're particularly enthused about as destinations for private capital to drive the energy transition? I mean, Aurora is in the process of expanding into Japan, Philippines, Malaysia, uh, Taiwan, uh, Singapore, and, and one or two others. It, what's your list of, of you know best places to develop renewable projects and and other components of the energy transition? Yeah, um, look, I, I would say in short, all of the above are interest to us. And um, you know, the way I sort of think about it is, um, I start off and look at where are we in terms of green integration across mm. Asia. Uh, and we did some research about a year ago and, and we looked at some of the numbers in Europe versus where we are in Asia. Uh, now, Europe has about 12% of electricity traded across borders at the moment and aiming for 15% by 2030. And they'll probably more than meet that. Now, Europe is you know, in different circumstances given the political union, the close economic ties, the, the geographical mm-hmm. proximity. Uh, but if you look here in Asia, it's 0.3% of the electricity that's traded across borders. So we're literally just at the start of this process. So it's the way we think about it is that we, we have to create a new industry here in, in Asia to, to develop this. Uh, and the benefits are large, right? If we did a thought experiment and said, look, could we meet Europe's target that they're aiming for in 2030, but do it 10 years later, so 24. Uh, you then basically create an industry which is about 500 billion US dollars of traded electricity um, annually you have mm. roughly about uh, 870,000 jobs. And from a carbon abatement standpoint, 
you you look uh, you can abate roughly three x Japan's current emissions. So it's a real game changer when we look at the region. The next step is we sort of pick that apart and say, well, where do we start? So we, we start with Singapore because Singapore was a, um, a, a particular obvious choice in some ways because of its high demand for renewable electricity, um, strong governance, uh, and also the limited domestic supply options. When you look at other regions, yeah, other countries in, in um, uh, across Asia, you actually have slightly different circumstances, but still really interesting opportunities. So you know, let me take Indonesia, for example. Now, Indonesia does have a huge amount of potential renewable electricity. The challenge is that they also have massive population density, you know, 100x what we have in Australia. And that's part of the reason it's very hard for land permitting and all those challenges to get scalable projects up. Um, and the hardest bit is that many of the provinces that have the highest demand for electricity in Indonesia are not the ones with the best renewable resource. So they're kind of like the problem that we're talking about at a global level, they've got it at a country level, but we're just within the islands. So that's another one where we get excited about saying what's the role of HVDC to support that across just with domestically. Um, and then when we go forward, like we're, we're excited across ASEAN, I think the ASEAN power grid is you know, people get a bit frustrated that it, 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 um, it doesn't move quicker. Um, I have a bit more sympathy. I think I feel a lot of these state-owned enterprises get saddled with jobs that are often outside their remit um, and, and do the best they can with the, the resources they face. But there's a there's a number of opportunities just across ASEAN. Uh, and then when you get to India, you know, the Indian government's been quite active in thinking about the, about the Green Grid um, initiative um, and the One Sun, One, uh, one Grid, One World um, uh, concept. Uh, and they've got a number of ambitious projects planned and you know, one from India to Oman. Um, so there's there's a number of projects that we're really interested in, and it's it's really kind of where do you start? And, and, and we've said, look, our starting point is this Australia-Singapore project before we, we look at these other ones. Terrific. Let's maybe pivot to Australia then. So for our European listeners, Australia's been going through a pretty profound energy crisis over the last six months. In fact, our national electricity market was even suspended for a period of time due to very high prices, basically. Um, older coal plants are proving less reliable, gas prices very volatile, Fraser, to your earlier point, um, but also flooding at certain coal mines, a whole pile of interrelated factors. Um, and, and that sits on a bedrock, I suppose, of a decade of what's described in Australia of, of climate wars and, and very acrimonious political, but also increasingly market design debates as well. What do you think are some of the long-term impacts of the current crisis in Australia? Um, and and, key, and for, again, overseas listeners, we've just elected a new federal Labor government who are ramping up the ambition on decarbonisation as well. Yeah, look, it, it's a painful time right, in, in the Australian domestic context in the energy markets. And it's, you know, many of us have been scratching our heads and going, you know, how, how can we get to this situation where you know, a, a country that's, that's blessed with this incredible amount of renewable resource, uh, we're in a situation where we're facing this kind of high prices and volatile prices uh, that, you know, as you referred to, Hugo's, that, that, that we know the key to the energy policy is that it's long-term and we have struggled in Australia uh, over the last you know, 10 to 15 years of actually putting together a, a coherent energy strategy. Now, hopefully, you know, we, we are now seeing that period pass. <coughs> starting to see some really positive signals. 
Uh, I think the focus on transmission is, is, a, is a really important one. Uh, we often get tripped up with this question of saying, well, what's the cost benefit of, of transmission? And, and often we take a very narrow rigid view of the benefits of transmission. Um, and we, we miss out some of the biggest opportunities that it creates, you know, downstream opportunities that suddenly can, can uh, be created, uh, the mitigation of the volatility of prices, et cetera. So I, I think there's a, there's a lot to be excited about. Uh, look, if I, if I had my own wish list of what I'd like to see in the, the government policy, there's a couple of things that I'd point to. Um, one is that I think the IEMO is doing a terrific job in, in trying managing the grid and, and building a, a much more developed and advanced grid. Uh, I still think the scale of ambition is far too low for what we're going to need. When I look at the current plans, I look at a system that is basically business as usual, uh, that will look at some of the, the, the shifting demand we'll see amongst households for renewable electricity but it doesn't cater for the huge export opportunity that we're going to see for, for various green products. So we're going to need not just one NEM, we're going to need multiple NEMs mm. to actually get the scale of opportunity that Australia has. The second piece of that is that we should be working a lot harder on some of the downstream opportunities. Uh, and I'll, I'll give you one example is sustainable aviation fuels. It's a tremendous opportunity for Australia given you know, it, our, our great renewable resource. We also have one of the world's leading airlines um, here. Uh, but one of the missing links has been around government policy and the ambition level. Um, the, the US and the UK have been um, really ambitious and at the forefront of a lot of a sustainable aviation um, uh, policy, uh, creating the right kind of supply side and demand side incentive to grow this. Uh, and this is something that we really could kickstart. And there's no reason why we shouldn't be the, the world leaders uh, in sustainable aviation fuel if we get this right. I Just to pick up on something there, and long-time listeners of this podcast will be sick of me banging on about this issue, but I do very much agree with you in terms of the way we think about transmission. Now, I, I'm an energy market model and look at the world through that prism, but I think even the modelling we do in Australia around what's called the RIT-T process, essentially the cost-benefit analysis of transmission, is generally quite poor and just very narrow. So, you know, even in a technical modeling sense, I don't think we're thinking hard enough about, for example, multiple weather years, commodity price volatility, uh, stochastic outages of coal plants, um, outages of interconnectors elsewhere in the system, all of which have driven massive volatility in Australia's electricity market, flowed through into customer bills, but also, you know, made in, in some ways Australia quite a challenging place to invest because of that volatility. So I think there's a lot more there we could do on the transmission side. And certainly Chris Bowen, Australian Energy Minister, has talked about that. The New South Wales and Victorian governments are pivoting to actually like change the cost benefit tests for transmission. But it is a bit of a theme as well. Like, you know, I operate in California now. And it's the same kind of set of complaints around cost benefit of, of transmission. And I don't think anyone's really cracked the nut. And look, consumer organizations do push back. Like if we're going to build this stuff, we've got to co be confident it delivers benefits. But I think, as you say, it's thinking more holistically and systemically about the benefits rather than the quite narrow way we come at it at the moment. Yeah, look, I, I completely agree. It's, um, it's my sort of pet topic too of, of both sort of love talking about it but get frustrated as what I talk about <laughs> it as well. But the like when I, I think about it in the most simplistic terms it, it is from an Australian standpoint, that we have, you know, we're a continent um, and that gives 
challenges, but also gives great opportunities when we think about shifting time patterns of demand and, and the shifting supply profiles that we can take advantage of. And if you look at our grid today, it's a, it's a very vertical grid. Like we're, we're very heavy on the east coast and runs north to south. There's very limited east-west, um, which, which doesn't make sense to me from a, a few different levels. One is that you, know, you get lower cost land and often better, better resources uh, further inland. And, and secondly, uh, you also benefit from that time shifting we talked about earlier. So uh, I feel like that uh, this is not to, to, to bag emo. I think we're, they've, they've done some good technical analysis. We've, we've pushed forward the mm. agenda significantly. Mm. I, I think it more speaks to a, a more national discussion that we need to raise the ambition level of kind of where do we want to go and then what do we need to do from a grid to actually support that. Yeah, no, t- totally agree. Fraser, if we could pivot a little bit and talk about your career now from a couple of different perspectives, and, and Mac will take the second one. You were at McKinsey and BCG, and McKinsey for quite a, a long period of time. You know, I think we, you know, I was at McKinsey for for, for a shorter period of time, but we always described it as, as dog years, basically. Um, and in some ways, both of those institutions have done a relatively good job about, you know, building a mystique and a reputation, although, you know, McKinsey's been in the headlines recently for some of the wrong reasons. What do you think were one or two things that you took away from those institutions that have been general, you know, genuinely helpful for you in the, in the long run? I had a wonderful time at both. I was only at BCG briefly before I, I, between my undergraduate studies and graduate studies, but enjoyed that experience a lot. And then it was at McKinsey, it was meant to be for two years, like many people, and then ended up being nine years. Um, and uh, <laughs> that, that was across the Middle East, uh, London and, and Singapore. And I think, you know, it, I, I get disappointed seeing that the current troubles that uh, uh, McKinsey has faced in the, um, with with some of these transgressions that are going on, but it, you know, for me, it's an institution that's actually quite strong in its values focus. Um, yeah, and uh, and that I think is you know, becomes in, it's incredibly important that I think a lot of uh, a lot of alumni take forward into the different careers. The the other thing that I really took away from it was that we we often spend a lot of time at, at McKinsey in particular looking at the mega trends, you know, looking at urbanisation, sustainability, growth of consuming class. And often the most interesting opportunities come at the intersection of two or three of those trends. Mm. Uh, and when I, th- when I think about Sun Cable, the, you know, one of the things that got me excited when we were founding the company was that I saw the, the trend around the growth of consuming class and what that would mean in terms of uh, demand for, for energy. Uh, and we all know that hockey stick that we see is, as you start to get people entering the consuming class in terms of demand. You then see the urbanisation trend, which is shifting to certain key centres uh, mm. of, of demand, but also reducing some of the available land that would otherwise be used for, for local renewables. Uh, and then, of course, this trend around um, sustainability um, and shifting from being a, a nice to have to a, to a licence to operate. And, and that, for me, is, is one of the things I've really been thankful for, is the you know, learning to, to interrogate some of those trends and understand exactly what do they mean. Thanks, Fraser. And, and you know, maybe to kind of, you know, ask a little bit more about your, your, your academic um, kind of years in, in Oxford and then your decision to kind of move back into industry. So you did a couple of years um, in, in Oxford with, with a PhD and master's in economics, as I understand. Um, and you quite quickly, as you mentioned, came out to BCG and then and, and to the World Bank and then McKinsey amongst others. Um, which, and we do actually have quite a few, you know, of our analysts that have kind of came through a PhD route that have joined us. 
would you typically recommend a PhD to, to people who are not actually, you know, interested in a long-term career in academia? Were there any kind of key bits of your PhD that you really took away that, that helped with your professional career to date? You know, for, for me, you know, people come to these with different motivations. And uh, for me personally, I never wanted to go into academia. But the, the drive to do a PhD was, I was really fascinated by public policy and, and wanting to have a toolkit to actually interrogate some of these key issues and go as deep as you need. Uh, and, and that's been incredibly useful. And just, you know, Hugo, to the discussion we just had around um, transmission lines and the cost benefits, you, it, it's very easy to get the received wisdom and so on. Yeah. This doesn't make sense. But being able to really you know, dive deep into that, tear it apart and say, well, what's, what is that really uh, underpinned by? And is that assumption really credible? Um, and what if, what if, what if? Uh, this I found became, uh, for me, a, a terrific benefit. So I guess I'd say that it's, you don't have to just want to go into academia and do a pitch. And I, and I strongly encourage you know, people who are interested to do it. I'd say the caveat is that um, a, apart from making sure you get a good supervisor, um, and, and, you know, not the typical supervisor who you come into their room and they say, what's your name again? You say, I'm the guy that's been <laughs> um, but, uh, <laughs> I think also making sure that you've really got a passion for it because it is, you know, the cliche, it's, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Um, and I think unless you've got that, that passion for the subject, it's, uh, it, it often is a, a, a great trade-off. But uh, I, I loved it and I consider myself incredibly fortunate at that time. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? John Federson, who you know well, you know, another BCG Rhodes Scholar into the uh, PhD program at Oxford Economics, he and I have this back and forth because I'm I'm a little bit more sceptical of the values of PhDs. And I think there's a lot of talent that goes in because it's the next carrot in front of the nose of, of smart people, but they get to the end of it. And then they're like, well, I don't want to go into academia, you know, and, and they're almost, they've kind of taken four years, admittedly at a glorious institution like Oxford, and there's worse ways to spend your time than that. And, and then go to what they would have done anyway after a, a master's without necessarily contributing enormously to the body of, of human knowledge. And so I just, I, I wonder if there's a redesign coming of the way we think about graduate studies and you know, because I, I think we do burn a lot of talent and apparently it's an NPV negative decision on average for, for people because they chew up four years at the front of their career and, you know, don't necessarily earn it, earn it back later. And that shouldn't be the basis for all decisions, right? I hope there's still people out there writing PhDs about Hamlet in 50 years and, and that's never going to be an NPV positive decision. But yeah, Fedo and I have this back and forth and, and often we're a bit misaligned. <laughs> it's a good debate to have, right? And I, I do think, when these academic credentials become like a, an arms race of just yeah. saying that it's the next big thing. And, and, and I got, you know, that uh, I remember when I started at McKinsey, one thing I found a little bit frustrating was that there was this just emphasis on that all business analysts would then go and do an MBA. Uh, yeah. And often one like, why? <laughs> so, I, you know, it's, I think MBA is a great, I never did one, but I can imagine they're, they're great for certain people, but I don't think it should be a requirement for everyone. Uh, and, and McKinsey did evolve that and, and change mm. different pathways for promotion. But, yeah, I think when, we, when, we, when it becomes a, a, a credentials arm race, then we're in a very, we are in an MPB negative territory. <laughs> Fraser, one final question then, and I ask this to all our guests, uh, and we get some great responses. Who do you read or listen to in the energy space that you think is always 
good, thought-provoking and relevant to your work in the private sector. And you mean, obviously, in addition to this podcast? Yes, of, <laughs> other than Energy Unplugged, obviously. <laughs> so um, I, I listen to a bit of an eclectic mix of podcasts and uh, I'm a, this won't resonate with people outside Australia, but I'm a, um, an Essendon supporter for Australian rules football. So I've stopped <laughs> listening to football podcasts because they just depress me. Um, so look, I spend a lot of time on different podcasts um, and for a variety of different sources, not just in the energy sector, because I think it's always interesting to look at you know, what, are, what are trends happening in parallel uh, sectors and, and how does that have implications for the energy sector? Um, but when the energy space, you know, in Australia, like listen to Energy Insiders podcast, um, mm. it's always interesting to see what's what's coming on and, um, and locally. Uh, the Redefining Energy podcast I've been listening to a lot lately, um, and uh, I found some of the you know really interesting uh, episodes about what's happening with battery technology, and yeah, um, and, it's, and it's fascinating to see some of the, the latest developments and and the, the excitement versus the the reality. Um, of some of these technologies. Uh, so those are a couple that I'd, I'd point to. No, terrific. I'd love to hear more suggestions. So if, it, if you've got a, a good list for me, please send it my way. Thanks a lot for your time um, today, Fraser. You know, we have obviously covered a huge amount in, in 40 minutes, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners would have learned a lot um, just about, you know, the, the Sun Cable project has always been a very fascinating project given the size and, and the scope that, that it is aiming to do. Um, and you're running one of the most busy organizations in the Australian energy space. So we are very, very appreciative of your time that you've taken to spend with us and our listeners today. So, so we do wish you all the best. And, and thanks again for, for all your, your kind of time and, and kind of contribution towards our podcast. Thanks, Mac. Thanks, Hugo, for having me. That was Hugo Batten, Aurora's Managing Director for APAC, talking to Fraser Thompson, Sun Cable's co-founder and Chief Strategy Officer, and Weiji Mack, Aurora's Head of Consulting in Australia. Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye.